This is the word of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Charles. What an, what an amazing passage of Scripture this morning. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, what an amazing privilege it is to call you our Father. Lord, may we not take that for granted. Uh, this, these, are, these are amazing truths that we're talking about this morning. Lord, recognizing the relationship that you have granted to us, that we can um, be called sons of God, that we can come to you as our Father. And Lord, we know that you are a good Father. Lord, I pray for, um, for Grace Church, Lord, for each one of us. You have called us to represent you in this time and in this place. Lord, and what a high calling that is. As your children, Lord, we are to look like you. We are to represent you well. I pray for uh, the marriages in this room. Lord, keep our marriages strong. May we accurately represent your love, Lord, through our marriages. Um, Help husbands and wives to to love one another and forgive one another well. Um, Help us, all of us who are parents in this room, Lord, help us. It is not easy being a parent, Father. And so help us, Lord, to be Um, loving towards our children with the same kind of love that you have towards us. Overflowing and gracious and generous, Lord. Help us to to love our children well and help us to be patient with them, Lord, knowing that they're growing, that they're learning too. I pray for our our children in this room. Help them to, to know how to honor their father and mother, to obey their parents. I pray that every one of us in our workplaces, Lord, would be 
um, filled with integrity, honorable, representing you well, Lord, so that um, the world around us can see what it looks like to be a follower of Christ and that that's something that's appealing to them. Father, that they see uh, the goodness that is found in you, Lord. Father, help us to represent you well in our communities, in our neighborhoods. May we be neighbors that are um, a a pleasure to have as neighbors, Lord. Um, And may we be pointing people to Christ through the way we live our lives. Um, Father, thank you so much for this church. Lord, thank you for bringing us together. Uh, What a great joy it is for us to be able to worship together each Sunday. And I pray now that you'd bless our time in your word, Lord. Help us to, to rightly hear from your spirit. Help us to to hear the things that you would have for us today, Lord. May we be sensitive to what you're telling us. And Lord, even if we don't want to hear it, I pray that we would would hear it, Lord, that we would respond to what you have for us. Father, we love you and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I just want to real quick um, uh, give a shout out to Lance Vargas, wherever Lance is. There he is. Um, Lance leads a group of guys on Sunday mornings at 9.30 here. for whoever wants to show up at 9.30, and um, really calling our men to, to be men and, and to pray for the church. And, and um, man, it's good to come up here knowing that I've been prayed for. <laughs> so I just really appreciate that. So um, good job. Um, we are in a series. We're going through um, the book of Galatians. It's first things first. And um, Galatians does an amazing job of really helping us get clarity around the gospel. And if we're going to be a church... We're going to be a gospel community. We need to make sure we have some clarity around the gospel. We need to make sure we understand this. And so up to this point, um, Paul has laid out his case, and he's told us there's only one gospel. There aren't a whole bunch of other options here. There's only one gospel. This is not a human invention. This is not something that's man-made. This came from the Lord, and, and he spoke in a variety of ways to a number of people to confirm this message. And the message that Paul is driving home in the book of Galatians is that salvation does not come through obedience to the law of Moses. That's not where salvation comes from. Salvation comes through faith in Christ. And so he talks about being justified by faith, which means declared righteous before God on the basis of our faith. And last week we looked at the fact that our faith continues on in our Christian life, that it's, it's not like you're saved by faith and then you work real hard. The reality is we're justified by faith and then sanctified by faith. We're continuing to grow in righteousness on the basis of our faith. And so today, what he's going to do is ask the big question, okay, so then why did we have the law? What's up with the law? Why was it even there? Um, you heard Charles read this for us, and we're going we're gonna to take apart what he's, he said there. Um, but why the law? And what we're going to see is that the law was given to us to point us to Christ, to push us in the direction of understanding what it is that we need to have and experience in Christ. And so really, my message this morning has two parts. First part is why the law? What's up with the law? Why did we need that? Why was it even there? Did God make a mistake? Or or why is the law there? And then the second part is what is it that we now have in Christ? What is, what is this thing that has been provided to us in Christ? And so the first part here, why the law, what we see first is that 
Paul, Paul, again, wants to make sure we don't miss this point. The law did not bring salvation. And that's his first, first emphasis here in verses 15 through 18. And what he's doing here is he's pointing back to Abraham. And just to refresh our memory, Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus. God appeared to Abraham and gave him a promise. And the promise was that he's going to give Abraham a huge family and he's going to bless him and all this stuff. And Genesis 12, 3, he tells these words, he gives these words, this promise to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now there's, you know, probably the assumption was Okay, so Abraham's going to have a big family, and that family becomes a nation, the nation of Israel, as we know, and Israel is going to be this amazing blessing to all the nations of the earth. Everybody's going to be better off because of Israel, but unfortunately, their history didn't really lend itself to that. Um, at times, their neighbors weren't very happy with them. And as you, as you go on, you also discover that they're not representing God very well. And so what Paul does here, what, what's amazing that he reveals here, is that the promise through Abraham wasn't spread out through all of the descendants. No, what he, what he emphasizes is this, the promise, this blessing, came through one descendant. There's one particular descendant of Abraham through whom all the blessing is extended to all the nations. And so he tells us here um, in verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. And so what he's doing is he's making an interesting, interesting statement here. So um, the word offspring or seed is, is one of these words that can be either plural or singular. So you can think of some words like this, like fish. Is fish singular or plural? Well, it could go either way. Deer. Deer is singular or plural. Right? There's a few words in the English language that are weird like this too. Right? This, this, we know about these words. And so what he's doing is he's saying there's, there's something very specific that God was doing here with this word. God was not doing what we assumed he was doing, which is to say that it was a whole bunch of offspring, but through one offspring. And so it was through Christ that the Lord established the blessing. It was through Christ that he was able to accomplish this. And so there's one Jewish man, one descendant of Abraham, who brought fulfillment to God's promises. Um, One Jewish man who really brought this blessing to the whole earth. And so Paul's point in making this, in stating this, is to remind once more, and he's been building this case once more, that it's not through the law. It's not that if the children of Israel will try really hard to keep the law, that that will bring the blessing to the nations. And this isn't like plan B, like God was like caught off guard, like, oh, shoot, it didn't work. What am I going to do now? This was his plan from the very beginning. And when he said offspring, he meant singular. So from the very beginning, the intention was that Jesus would come. He would be the one to fulfill all the promises that God had made up to this point. 
And so it's really hard to like overstate how important this is. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing ahead to one person, and it's Jesus Christ. Everything, all that old stuff, all the covenants, you know, we're, stick around, we're having a covenants class after this today um, that we're going through, our adult discipleship hour. We're walking through these covenants, and all of these covenants are pointing ahead to Christ, and every one of these covenants comes with a bit of a question mark. Well, how's that going to work? How is that going to happen? And every one of them is pointing ahead to Christ. So, okay, so the law isn't what, salva- what brings us salvation. So what's the point of the law? Okay, what's the purpose of the law? And what we see is that the law was intended from the beginning to point us to Christ. So, so let me just read this little section again. I'm going to read verses 19 through 22. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That was Jesus. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. An intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what he's getting at here, he says the the law was put in place because of transgression. Okay, now there's two ways we might be able to take that. Could be that the law was given because there's sin in the world, and he wants to keep us in line and make us good, so that when Jesus shows up, we're ready. We're already good. But that's not what he's getting at. And that's not what he tells us in Romans. That's not what he's building the case here. The purpose of the law was to shine a spotlight on our sin. It wasn't to get rid of our sin. It was to shine a spotlight on our sin. Have you ever seen those um, flashlights that are like 2 million candle power? You know, you can like shine them to outer space, right? And you see the beam that goes out for a couple miles or something is what it looks like. That's the law. The law is the 2 million candle power flashlight. Right? You, you shine it in the ground and you're like going blind because it's so bright. And what the, law, or what the law did was it was shining on each one of us and showing, wow, that's dirty. That's dirty. Oh, sin. Sin there. Sin there. Sin there. Until we couldn't get away. And so all the law was doing was a spotlight on our sin until it got to Jesus. And it shines on Jesus and we, we recognize immediately something different about him. He doesn't look all dirty like us. He doesn't have sin on him. He lives up to the righteous standard of the law. So when the law shines on us, it's, uh, it's not working. It, that, that's, that's not what we're looking for. But when it shines on Jesus, it identifies he has actually fulfilled the righteous standard of the law. And so it's not like the law failed. And that's Paul's point here. The law did not fail. The, the law came through Moses. That's what it means by an intermediary. The law came through Moses, came through these angels, and it accomplished its purpose. Its purpose was not to bring salvation. And this is interesting. When God wants to bring salvation, he does it himself. And so when he says um, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one, what's the point of that? That's a weird statement. Well, God is one. God is the one who made the promise directly to Abraham. God gave him the promise himself. He didn't go through an intermediary. 
And when God wants to bring salvation to us, He does it Himself. Christ Himself comes. And so the purpose of the law, what's the law all about? It's to point us, it's to show our need, and then to point us to the one who can live up to the law, the one who is the giver of life, the one through whom salvation does come, and that's Jesus. And so he goes on in verse 23 to tell us that the law was like a guardian. Let's let's look at that again here, verse 23 through 25. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And it's interesting there, I'll just comment. The the Jewish people had this view that the, the law was like a fence that would protect them and keep them in the right boundaries. Paul says the law wasn't like a a safety area. The law was like a prison. He takes that imagery and twists it and shows the law was imprisoning you. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So what the law did, it was, like a, it, was, it was there to provide discipline that would reveal our sin, that would show our need. It was tough love. And a little bit of background here, you know, we don't, it, it's interesting, like, d- depending on the translation of the Bible you have, this word gets translated differently. Sometimes it's guardian, sometimes it's tutor. And the reason for that is it was a specific function, it was a, a job in ancient times that we don't have anymore, okay? So in ancient Greece and Rome, you'd have wealthy parents who would take their child and put their child in the care of a nanny until they were about six years old. And then at about age six, they would move them over to the care of another household servant called a pedagogue, okay? It's where we get the word pedagogy, like training, teaching. Um, this, This pedagogue or guardian, And the pedagogue would do everything necessary to make sure that the child was raised according to really strict standards. So, for instance, they would teach them manners. So, here's a quote from an ancient writer. He says, what do the pedagogues teach? To walk in the public streets with lowered heads. To touch salt fish with one finger, but fresh fish, bread, and meat with two. To sit in such and such a posture, in such and such a way to wear their cloaks. Right? So, just... Manners, which apparently they're manners. I don't know what the salt fish thing was about, but they would teach the manners, and you better do it this way. And the pedagogue offered round-the-clock supervision and protection. They'd lead the boy to school and watch over his conduct. But they were mostly known as very harsh disciplinarians and would often resort to physical violence. They'd flick the ears, they'd whack them upside the head, that kind of stuff, right? They, they were there to keep the child in line. And in general... Um, all the historians say that students were scared of their pedagogues. <laughs> they did not like this person who was there to keep them in line and make sure they did what they were supposed to to get them to school. And so it's a stern disciplinarian. That's, that's the idea. That's this guardian, right? It's a harsh taskmaster. And so their purpose was for the good of the child, right? They want to raise them up as adults that are good members in society, it was a pretty tough way to get there, right? And so nobody liked the pedagogue, the, the guardian. And it's such a fascinating comparison, right? Because this is, this is this person who's unpleasant. They're there for a very specific purpose, and they're temporary. They're temporary. 
And that's what Paul is comparing the law to. The law is like this very unpleasant person who is in your, per- in your life to make sure you shape up <laughs> or at least to get to school on time, and they're temporary. So in God's plan of salvation, okay, now I'm, I'm being specific there. In God's plan of salvation, the law was temporary. So in that sense, as a Christian, you are no longer under the law. And Paul doesn't make any distinctions here. It's not like he's saying, okay, the circumcision thing, you can scrap that. And this thing about eating bacon, yeah, that's weird too. But make sure you don't commit adultery, right? He doesn't doesn't distinguish here. And so if you want some clarity on that, you should stick around for that covenants class. Okay, so... um, So what he does say, though, is that you are no longer under the law, period. So consider what Romans 7, 6 says, because Paul says this a bunch of times in a variety of ways. Um, But Romans 7, 6, he says, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So it's a total different place that we come from in serving the Lord than the Old Testament law. So does the law, just as a side note, does that mean that the law has no purpose whatsoever? The law is done. You could do, you know, we just tear out that back part of the Bible because we don't need that. Do we need? No. So the law does still have value. And I'll just read one thing and then we'll move on. First Timothy 1, 8 through 10 says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So remember, the law is like a guardian this harsh disciplinarian that leads us to Christ. So how does the law lead us to Christ? It leads us to Christ by showing us our need. So so let me um, just read a quote. This is Martin Luther. He really liked the book of Galatians. Um, He says, The law is a mirror to show a person what he's like, a sinner who is guilty of death and worthy of everlasting punishment. What is this bruising and beating by the hand of the law to accomplish this? That we may find the way to grace. The law is an usher to lead the way to grace. So why the law? What was the purpose of it? The whole purpose of it was to show us we have a problem. We have a deep and abiding problem and lasting problem, and it is sin, that our hearts are rebellious against God, and even when he gives us good standards to live by, we're not going to do it, because we don't want to, right? It's not that we can't not lie, it's just that we just don't want to not lie, right? And so it creeps in that this sin is present, and so the law is to reveal you have a problem, and if only there was a solution, Right? That's what the law does. So I want to read on because now, shifting from, okay, what was the purpose of the law? 
what is it now? This is the good news. <laughs> That's all bad news. What is it that we have in Christ? And it's amazing what we now have in Christ. So I want to read. I'm going to pick up in verse 26, and I'm going to actually read into chapter 4. Um, so from verse 26 on into chapter 4. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you all are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, even though he's owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an, then an heir through God. This passage says that we are adopted as sons of God. And I wanna, I'm going to invite Brian to come up here. Brian has, a, um, I think, a unique insight into this, and I want to give him an opportunity to share about this. That's my wife, Meredith, and I, and uh, our oldest daughter, Cassandra, on our wedding day. When I met Meredith and we got married, she was a widow and had a four-year-old daughter, Cassandra. And after we were married for a while, uh, I adopted Cassandra. And so when you adopted someone, you went into the, the judge's chamber with your attorney and the papers had been drawn up by your attorney, and the papers were all signed through this adoption process. And I asked her, he told us, I don't remember which, okay, what happens now? And the judge told me, well, what will happen now is we will go into the records of the court, and we will take Cassandra's birth certificate, take it out, and we will write a new birth certificate that has you as her biological father on her birth date. And when anybody goes and looks at Cassandra's birth certificate, they will see me as her biological father. And so adoption, when you get adopted into Christ's family, when you get saved, it's like the way I look at it is God says, okay, you're now my child. And he goes in and he takes your birth certificate out and your birth certificate originally says you are a child of the world, but then you've become Christ's, and so he takes that birth certificate and sets it aside, and he makes a new one for you that says you are a child of heaven, you are a son or daughter of God. And when anybody looks at that, including God, that's what he sees, and that's what he'll always be. That's so cool. <laughs> That's so cool. 
we are adopted as sons of God. That's, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Everything up to this point in Galatians has been talking about who is a child of Abraham. And then it's like Paul says, okay, let's, this is even better. <laughs> not, not only who's a child of Abraham, but who is a child of God, right? He, he takes it in giant leaps, leap forward. And it's interesting, you know, it, says, it doesn't say in Christ we're all children of God. Now, was Paul unaware that there were women in the room, right? Does he not know that there's daughters of God too? Why does he say sons of God? Well, what it seems to be is that he is pointing out that we all have the legal status of sons of God, right? So right of inheritance, right of of blessing, all of that as sons of God. So ladies, you're, you're not like, Second class here, like there's sons and daughters, and the daughters don't get as much, you know, because that's how it worked back then. No, we are all counted as sons of God, um, which, is, which is pretty powerful and pretty countercultural, frankly, for the day in which Paul was writing. Um, we are adopted as sons of God. That, that is just amazing language, and I feel like we'd just be done. I mean, that was, that was really good, Brian. <laughs> um, he, he draws some other conclusions from this. He also goes on to say that we, because of that, we have equal standing before God. So he says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, he makes the same point in a couple other spots. Over in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body... So it is with Christ, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Over in Colossians, he says it this way, he says, here there is, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Um, who belongs to Abraham's family? Um, Paul's saying all of you are on equal standing before God. Right? So there are all these distinctions between race and social status and gender and all those things. So in the, in the ancient world, the Jews were convinced they were better than the Gentiles. Okay? And if you're a free person, of course you're better than those slaves. right? And men were, you know, kind of derogatory toward women folk back then. And you can read that if you go back to some of the, the rabbis, you know, it's like, yeah, women can't quite access God the way we can. Um, what Paul is saying is we're all on level ground here. We are all equal before God in Christ, 100% equal. And so there's an equal standing before God. And it's not to completely eradicate those distinctions. It's not like he's saying race and social status and gender are completely irrelevant, right? Because he's still going to speak out against homosexuality as a sin, for instance. And he's going to still assign particular roles to men and women in the church. And if you jump over to the book of Revelation at the end, you're still going to see people from every tribe and nation and language before the throne of God, right? Those distinctions aren't eradicated. It's just when it comes to our standing before God, they're completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter if you're white or black or brown or, or whatever, right? None of that matters. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or rich or poor. Or, none, of, none of that matters. There's this amazing unity that we have. There's, there's one body of Christ, right? One body of Christ where we're all united. And so that's what Paul's saying here, which is amazing truth. And it all comes from the fact that we all come through Christ. We are all in Christ. And so it's not that there's different standings based on how you come to God. We are all coming in Christ. Um, He goes on and he says, um, well, actually, I just want to read a couple verses here. Isaiah 55.1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Revelation 22, Let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You you see a lot of these open-ended invitations throughout Scripture. And that's because it doesn't matter who you are. You can come to, to God by faith. And, man, just a side note, man, that is, that's good news for our world today. Isn't that good news? Because the world is, is struggling with how do we handle racial divides and how do we handle rich and poor? And how do we get equity? If only we could get equity. And that's not going to happen. <laughs> They're never going to get equity apart from Christ. In Christ, all of, us, all of us come before God recognizing we all have problems. We're all a mess. And yeah, we've, we've offended and hurt each other. You know, join the team. <laughs> Every one of us, we're all sinners, saved by grace, equal before God. And so, man, what? it's just good news. Okay, third thing. Um, we have His Spirit in our hearts crying, Abba. Verse 6 here, chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Um, Can I just point out, in the Old Testament, nobody called God their father. God is referred to as father just a, a handful of times. It's not common. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts referring to God as his father, personal father, everybody's offended right? Offended is putting it mildly. They want to stone him. They want to kill him because it's blasphemy, they say, to say that God is their father. In the Old Testament, a few times God gets referred to as a father to the nation of Israel. Jesus says, God is my father. And then he applies it to us. He says, here's how I want you to pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name which the first couple times they did that was probably like, are you sure I'm allowed to say this? Is that okay? I don't know. Is that all right? Can I say our Father? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this this word Abba was a very intimate word for God. It's probably not quite like daddy in English. Daddy sounds like you're a child, like you're, you're a toddler or a little kid or something. That's kind of the feel of that. Um, this was... However, still a very intimate term, a very close, personal term for God. Um, Romans eight fifteen through 16. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is incredible assurance. Now, I just want to stop for a second and point out It is really interesting that God chooses the 
analogy, if you will, of father and son as what he would describe our relationship like. And the reason for that is, I mean, look around the world. There's a ton of people that grow up without a father, right? So they don't have a real good view of of fathers. And then there's a whole bunch of people that grow up with abusive fathers, and so they don't have a good view of father. And yet there's this deep longing, this wish that they did have a father. Um, I can, I can, from my own pers- uh, personal uh, experience, say that um, I didn't have a good relationship with my dad. I'm, I'm estranged from my dad. And so, um, you know, how, you know, working through that was really hard. Um, part of how I worked through that was this truth that God is my father, that I can look to him as a dad to fill that, that void that, man, I wish my dad could have been like this. I wish my dad was like that. Um, for, for many, it's hard to relate to God as father because they've never experienced that, right? And yet God shows us what that looks like through his faithfulness. Um, yeah, and so instead of like, man, wallowing in misery and saying, man, I wish my dad was whatever, like, no, no, just recognize God is perfect heavenly father. Um, I want to share a verse. This isn't in the, in the slides. Um, this, this is a verse. I was just looking at it again this morning, but um, it's a verse that, that kind of struck home with me many years ago, and it's in the book of Jeremiah, and God is speaking as a father to Israel, and it's interesting because, you know, the book of Jeremiah is a book of largely judgment, mostly bad news, And it's God speaking to Israel after they have rebelled against him for about a thousand years. So for a thousand years, you know, you have a few glimmers of hope in there. A couple couple individuals that did a pretty good job following the Lord. You know, David did great except for that time with Bathsheba and that stuff, you know. But you, you have a few individuals who were faithful. But for more or less a thousand years, Israel was not faithful to the Lord. And then you get to the book of Jeremiah, and God is speaking out against them. And I just want to read Jeremiah 31, verse 20. It's one of my favorite verses. And since we're talking about God as Father, you guys get to come along for the ride. So Jeremiah 31, verse 20. God says, is Ephraim my dear son? Ephraim was one of the tribes of Israel. It's another reference to the nation. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Now, that is a powerful statement after about 30 chapters or so of God saying, judgment's coming. (laughs) I'm going to send you into exile. I'm going to discipline you for all the junk for a thousand years. But I still remember you. I still love you. I'm still going to have mercy on you. That's the picture of God as Father. And it is yeah, so powerful. Um, one more thing. Back here in Galatians. One more thing that we have in Christ, and there's probably many more. But one more thing that Paul mentions here. He says that we have an inheritance with Christ. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. 
I don't know, anybody in here have a super wealthy uncle or something? <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand. You might get, you might get requests later. I don't know. Um, can you imagine what it's like to be an heir to God? Let me just read a couple verses. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says much the same as Galatians here. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Did you hear that? Fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? (laughs) Anybody have a hard time wrapping your brain around that one? Um, What does that mean? So Hebrews 1-2 says that Christ was appointed the heir of all things. Everything. The whole universe. It all belongs to Jesus. All of it. And we're fellow heirs. So... I don't know I don't know how to explain that one other than wow that's a lot. Um I don't know how we can comprehend that. And then then you jump over to 1 Peter. Peter talks about this as well. 1 Peter 1 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So the law was given to point us to Christ. And in Christ, we are adopted as sons and we are welcomed into his family and we're given an inheritance that will never perish, cannot be defiled, can't be stolen, can't be taken away. And it includes everything pretty much. It's just incredible. You know, we, we have <laughs> these promises that are bigger and better and, and broader than anything I think we can, we can imagine, that we can fathom. What does it take to gain this inheritance? Well, surely we've got to work hard, right? Is that how it works? That doesn't work that way for any inheritance, does it? You just need to, you need to be part of that family. Then you get that inheritance, right? And so in Christ... We are part of this family. In Christ, we are counted as you know, sons of God who have been given the blessings of Abraham. We're part of all of this. And so, yeah, what does it take to be in Christ? Uh, what does it take to be in Christ? It simply means, Paul has been saying all through the book of Galatians, to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, to trust Him instead of yourself. Right, you can't be your own Savior. You're not going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You need someone else to help you because remember, the law was shining a light on our sin. Every one of us was condemned before God. Every one of us guilty of breaking His standard. And yet Christ comes along who lives up to that standard perfectly, who not only fulfills the standard of the law, fulfills, as we saw last week, the curse of the law. He took the punishment on himself for us so that we can receive salvation in him. And so what Christ does for us, it's, it's like hard to overstate this. He does everything. He does everything, all of it. And 
then we get to share in his inheritance. Everything that was his is, is ours now. And so we're going we're gonna to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a minute. And um, all of it, everything that we, we do is, is anchored in Christ, right? When, when, we, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, this is the single most unifying expression that we have together as Christians, right? This is what unites us, is our common fellowship in Christ. And so, you know, as we look at this, I'm just reminded of Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so God has made this great promise. He has fulfilled it through Christ. He has extended his blessing to us. And so now, regardless of of what our background is, if, if you've made a public profession of faith in Christ, we would encourage you to be part of this. And um, what, what a glorious opportunity to celebrate what we have. So let's pray. Our Father, oh, once again, our Father. Father, you have loved us. You have loved us perfectly. You have adopted us as your children. You have eradicated our old birth certificate to the world, Lord. You have made us your children. Father, you have given us a place in your family. Lord, you have put your spirit in us, causing us to cry out, Abba, Father. To have that kind of close intimacy with you. And then, Lord, if that was not enough, you've given us everything. Lord, you have made us co-heirs with Christ. Lord, you have extended all the blessings that Christ rightly deserves to us. And so, Father, as we once more remember what Christ has done for us, Lord, Father, we are grateful. And I pray, Lord, that um, as we remember Christ, Lord, we would also remember the, the glorious truth that we are your children. Father, we love you and we pray these things in Christ's name.